You are now listening to Conscientization 101, an online magazine combining reflection, music, and action through independent media. It's uh, very important to be with conscious African women and men. And I'm very excited to see Conscientization 101, to see Sister Zari there and the brother James and uh, to see that you have started an organization to conscientize the world, especially African people about what's really going on in this world. Conscientization 101. A lot of these people right now in this conscious, local conscious movement, they're not actually living in that, in that lifestyle. Bakers. That's why, you know, obviously yourself, we're on the same sort of frequency. That's why you're listening to the same things I'm listening to because we're sharing that same sort of thought. We want the same sort of things and a lot of people don't want the same sort of things. Even yourself, what you're doing now is for the people. So everything is people-based. Globally conscientizing. What's making me proud of what um, this kind of connection here is that, you know... Well, no matter what is said, no matter what is done, um, you, you leave that, you leave listening to our music with a feeling. The same way we're going to leave this conversation with a feeling. Mm-hmm. And um, that is the most important thing you know, for, for I and I, the, the vibe and the energy and the feeling that you leave with. Because you might not remember every lyric, but you're going to remember the feeling. So um, that's, 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 that's really important, and that's what I'm getting from what you're doing. Doing, doing, doing. Europeans intend to maintain the power of definition, which we'll talk about tonight. Because special education, as we will talk about shortly, is a definition. And as I said, I think earlier today, before we get involved in a discussion of special education, we should ask, why have we permitted the Europeans to define what it is? Why do they have the power to do so, and why do we submit to their definition of our behavior as a people? So before you get caught up in the the intricacies of whether tests can differentiate between the learning disabled and the non-disabled, you should ask first questions first. Who determines it, and why are they able to impose their determination? on us as a people. It is through then defining the world as we will elaborate that the European manipulates the world and maintains his power in it and therefore he he intends to maintain that power of definition. He intends to maintain control of the domain of discourse. A great deal of the discussion today over the various kinds of curricula, the multicultural curriculum, the, the curriculum of inclusion, the African-centered curriculum, and so forth, are struggles with the European over who will define what is it is important to talk about. What shall be taught and what shall not be taught. What people shall learn and not learn. What educational experience shall people undergo and not undergo? Because all of these are related to power and to power relations. And therefore, if the European is intending to maintain power and control of the world, 
he must seek to maintain control over the domain of discourse. To decide what is worth talking about, to decide what is news, to decide the subject matter of curricula of various types. There are other areas, the area of course of always making those things African secondary to those things European. These constants had, were there from the beginning, they are here now, and it's every, there's every intention for them to remain in the future. Despite the elevation of blacks to high-level jobs, despite, you know, some amounts of assimilationism, and despite some multiculturalism in the schools and so forth, these intentions remain the same. And it becomes very important for you to watch the changes and how they maintain these things. Because if you are to gain power in the world, it must be these very things which must be changed, ladies and gentlemen. The education of Africans has always revolved around education for servitude. That has not changed one whit. I have, I have warned in awakening the natural genius of black children that the main purpose of education is not preparing black children for jobs. It is not preparing them to work for white folk. That is not the main purpose of the education of our children or our people. For if that is our main purpose, then it means another constant has remained in the world. And that's the constant of slavery under a different name. Now it's called looking for a job with the same people having the jobs and the same people determining our wages. If you're talking about true change in the world, then you must educate yourself to create your own jobs and to employ yourself. But today, education for blacks, I don't care how high it is, essentially still being defined in terms of servitude. And we think when we are educated in terms of how and where we will be employed by Europeans. That has to change. But the education of black people from 1619 right to this very moment has had this as a central tenet. Training black folk to serve white folks' interests. Training white folk to be as productive as possible for Europeans, with the Europeans owning the means of production. Education that was separate and unequal. And believe me, I'm not an advocate of integrated education. Education that was ultimately and is ultimately degrading to black people has not changed. It was that way from the beginning, and it's that way right now. Education that ultimately insults the history and culture of African people. Education that is Eurocentric, meaning an education that prepares black people to maintain European power as the central power in the world. Education of black people according to the white man's estimation of black intelligence and his need to shape and direct it. 
And all of this was done in pursuit of maximum production per unit of slave labor. If you would read the magazines during this period, you will see great discussions as to how to maximize uh, production on the plantation, how to relate to the slaves, how to train them and how to, to motivate them so as to maximize profit. So within the broad limits of this rational system, he, the slave master, was expected to require and get absolute obedience, loyalty, docility, diligence, and other patterns of behavior considered essential for profitable production and survival of the slavery economy. Another constant that has not changed, has it? <laughs> not at all. For ladies and gentlemen, this is the central of the education of African Americans today to maximize what production for Europeans and to establish in the African body absolute obedience, loyalty, docility, diligence, and other patterns of behavior considered essential for whom? For Africans themselves? Conscientization 101. Welcome to another episode of Conscientization 101. Podcast. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Conscientization 101 podcast. I am your host for this episode, Zari Sundiata, Managing Editor for Conscientization 101. Before we get into this episode, we wanted to let everybody know that the problem we had with our Google search has been fixed. And, you know, fortunately, our site was not hacked, okay? It was just a mix-up on our host server. So now our Google search works. It should produce the correct results, so that's all clear. We also want to let you know that we added some really cool updates to the site, one of them being a sticky banner that's for desktop users, and that basically makes it to where the top part with all the menu and our logo and everything stays in place as you scroll down. So you can, you know, see the menu, and if you want to change between menus as you're scrolling, you can do that. We also changed our features slide. It's available for the mobile version now. And we've also included some arrows, just like disappearing arrows. So if you scroll over it or put your mouse over it, the arrows will show up and you can control the images on the slider on the desktop. So we thought that these updates would make the site more user-friendly and we hope you enjoy those updates. So now that we got all the housekeeping out of the way, let's get in today's episode. All right, so today we continue our IDEO Praxis Series with Dr. Amos Wilson. And we wanted to define IDEO Praxis once again for everyone. Everyone, 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 everyone. 
Idiopraxis is a term coined by renowned African scholar and author Aikwe Armaa, which means the translation of ideas systematically embraced into structured behavior and lifestyle. Idiopraxis is the yardstick that separates revolutionary performers from phonies. That is from Remembering the Dismembered Continent, pages 75 to 76. So, with that term in mind, we created our Audio Practice Series, which is an extension of our Constantization 101 produced tracks from our free gift, Musical Commentaries, featuring Dr. Marimba Ani, who you've heard from before, Dr. Amos Wilson, and Dr. John Henrik Clark. Clark, Clark. These podcast episodes include lectures we have curated and digitally remastered from each of these African scholars in order to preserve these critical insights and analysis in the wake of an increasingly restrictive and controlled YouTube, because that is where we got this information from. And just an example of, and just it's not just YouTube, okay? It's an example of the situation that's happening with all this social media And just an example of that problem, there is a commentary written by a brother named Bruce Dixon from Black Agenda Report. He's a Black Agenda Report managing editor, and he has a commentary titled Liberal Ire at Trump and Cambridge Analytica is misdirected from billionaires who own your data. And basically, he's talking about how people who own the means of production, they basically deem themselves the owners of the content on Facebook and other social media, so Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. So when you post a video, an audio show or interview or anything on that media, they have determined that they own it and they can sell your information to marketers that you you won't know if, if they won't ask you for your permission. Okay. And to add insult to in, injury, they use their corporate control to have laws written in their favor. So basically, it doesn't really matter. If, if you feel like you're the content creator, they are the owners. They have deemed themselves that way and they have written that into law. Okay. So basically what we do this for is because it's important to own as much of the production process as you can. Okay. And there's nothing more ironic than us saying that we as a people need to be sovereign. And then our content is on somebody else's media. It's on it's on media and platforms that somebody else's own. So we understand there's some things that we can't help, you know, like shopping for groceries, medical care, all that stuff. Right now we can't help it, of course. But there are some things that we can produce that we can control at least the majority of what we own and what we uh, what we distribute. Okay, so it's important, super important that we understand and study political economy and figure out who owns what and how to maintain control. And at Constantization 101, we do not have this problem because we have our information and we pay for space on a server. So all that data that we have on there, all our content is owned by us. We don't have our information on the server that's free, like YouTube, where they can control it and do what they want to do. Okay, all of our masters are in our computer. We do not have this problem. So, um, you know, it's just important. It's important for us to understand political economy and really understand what they're doing with when they roll out all these platforms that are supposed to make the world more free and open. 
Okay, <laughs> let's let's really think about it. Let's really study it and understand it. And that is why we have Constantization 101 Library, because we don't say just study it. We got a whole gang of books that you can choose from to learn about political economy. And guess what? We also have a category that says political economy. All right. And just in case you want to read or listen to, because it is an audio commentary and it is also written, the article by Brother Bruce Dixon, we will link to that in our show notes. All right, everybody, now that you know, or of course you already knew because you subscribed to this podcast, what our audio practice series is, let's get into what today's episode is about. Today, we present to you Dr. Amos Wilson on Feel Good History, part one of three, and it is digitally remastered. This lecture took place at African Echoes in New Jersey circa early 1990s. Before we get into what will be discussed in today's episode, let's give you a brief bio on our beloved brother, Dr. Dr. Amos Amos Wilson. Dr. Amos N. Wilson was a social caseworker, supervising probation officer, psychological counselor, training administrator in New York City Department of Juvenile Justice, and assistant professor of psychology at the City University of New York. He was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1941 and completed his undergraduate degree at Morehouse College. He later moved to New York where he completed his master's at the New School for Social Research before attaining his doctorate from Fordham University, New York City in the field of general theoretical psychology. Familiarly referred to as Brother Amos, he availed himself for numerous appearances at educational, cultural, and political organizations such as the First World Alliance, the African Poetry Theater, African Echoes, House of Our Lord Church, the Patrice Lumumba Coalition, the Slave Theater, and Simotap, just to name a few. His travels took him throughout the United States to Canada and the Caribbean. Dr. Wilson's activities transcended academia into the field of business, owning and operating various enterprises in the greater New York area. A prolific writer, Wilson has penned other pertinent works in the areas of education, child development, and therapeutic psychology. Brother Amos passed away on January 14, 1995. Also, what you heard at the beginning of the show was the Conscientization 101 produced track titled Dr. Amos Wilson on Colonial Education from our free gift, Musical Commentaries. And for those of you who don't have our free gift musical commentaries, we will let you know how to get those before the end of the show. So now that we have given you a brief bio, let's get into some of the topics Dr. Wilson will be discussing in part one. The fallacy of the ego massaging and conspiracy theory approach to history, importance of reading for the development of conscientization, importance of theory, and why so-called educational problems, quote-unquote, of African children are not innate academic ineptitude, but political problems created by alien colonial domination, and much more. And now, we present to you part one of Dr. Amos Wilson on Feel Good History on Conscientization 101's Ideal Praxis Series. Brother Amos Wilson, welcome to African Echoes. 
Everybody give Brother Amos Wilson a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you, and it's an honor to have been invited to do so. We'll talk a little bit today about culture and identity, and I could appreciate the, the prior speakers, and certainly I appreciate uh, the candor, your candor. I think it's very, very important that we confront the reality of the situation we're in. And if some of you have known me, and I'm sure you have for a long time, you know, I've spoken out again and again about the ego massaging approach to history. And in fact, I, I think maybe about the first times it was, might have been at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Uh, and it's understandable why we want to massage our egos and to lift ourselves up and to feel good about ourselves, and that <clears throat> should be done. However, it is very important, too, that we look at the reality of the situation we are in, or else we can come blinded by our attempt to maintain ourselves with just good feelings and great feelings. And that can be just as harmful, you see, as not knowing the truth as well. We have to tell both sides the truth. I heard you had a little thing here the last time here with Brother Coakley. I never quite got this story. I haven't had a chance to really uh, meet uh, Coakley, but, and I've heard his tapes. I have, uh, frankly, no major problem with Mr. Coakley, and I wished him well. And I'm sure if we were to meet him today, we would get along quite well. I have no problems with Steve Coakley. Uh, he happened to hear an address, not an address, but a radio program. I was on in D.C. I gather it might have been he to call and ask the question. I'm, I hear sometimes he calls in disguise. But uh, I want to, I want to, and uh, I want to clarify. My situation, which is, of course, I think you're pretty much familiar with, but my critique of the conspiracy approach is very well known. Some of you, if you are not aware of it, I'm sure Brother Yusuf has probably the tape that I did at uh, Harriet Tubman around the time when we were dealing with uh, the issue of... of um, Violence, yeah, the violence initiative, yeah. And I've stated it in other places as well as I did on the radio, so it's no, in, so my concerns about conspiracy approaches to history have been quite public and quite clear. I have no problem with us determining what conspiracies exist. And obviously there are conspiracies, and it's very important that we know those conspiracies. However, I do advocate that we cannot spend all of our energy into just trying to root them out, that there's much more work to be done than the mere discovery of conspiracies. 
just as I have just got to saying about history. While we use our history to uplift ourselves, to uplift our esteem, to bring truth to ourselves, to transform ourselves, we must not get addicted to this. We must also look at the realities that confront us as people. And while we look at the conspiracies against us as a people, we must not also get addicted to just digging up, up conspiracies. As I have warned before, by the time you find out the conspiracy and who's behind it, it's too late. It's too late. It's too late. And it takes more than knowing about it to defend yourself against it. And you really don't have to know about it, frankly speaking. If you're only going to learn about conspiracy and then react, you remain in the same mode of action that we are in today, reactionary. Our orientation toward the world today as African people must be proactionary. Our ability to defend ourselves must occur before the fact. Our programs to liberate ourselves and to defend our liberation, to enhance our quality of life, to overthrow white supremacy must go on regardless as to what other people are doing. Whether they apply in the scheming or not, it does not really matter. We'll assume, I will assume that whites are scheming. I will assume that they are black boulets. There's no problem with that. But my thing is what? We must build an African global system that will secure us against black boulets, white conspiracy, or any other ethnic group of conspiracy in the world. This is a positive approach. And so consequently then, we have to watch out then when we just get one-sided in issues and recognize we have to bring balance to ourselves in the world. You also have to be careful when you get into conspiracy theory, and that's good, and discovering conspiracies. Conspiracies have a way of seducing you and seducing audiences and creating pressures. And ultimately, if you don't watch it, when you get an audience caught up looking for a new something coming out from under the rock and you build an image based on that, now in every lecture you got to bring out, you know, some new piece. Sometimes the conspiracy starts happening before they start happening. You see, you start beginning to be a bit creative. And you can start, if you don't watch out, to feed on yourself. You see, because if you get built up in that kind of thing as a lecturer and you get attached to an audience that way and you know an audience is looking for this, then you start looking for enemies and people. And then you start naming people and you start feeding the monster, you see. And after a while, you'll feed one person after another. And after a while, the community itself will eat on itself and feed on itself 
and destroy itself, you see. So we have to be very, very careful. There's nothing wrong with studying conspiracies. There's nothing wrong with studying other people's organizations. In the series I'm doing on power, that is exactly what I do. Much of the stuff that uh, Brother Coakley deals with is dealt with as a part of my power series. Much of the information is public, actually. It's not really hidden and secret. If you have an interest in it, and that's your orientation, you can literally find it almost anywhere you want to. The important part, though, is just not naming it and pointing it out. At some point, it must be translated into a plan of action. It must become a part of the organization of the African-American community. The understanding of how these other groups are working and of their organizations must ultimately be built in to how we will design our organizations, how we will organize ourselves, how we then will use the strength that we already have to counter these organizations. The studies of these other organizations and so forth becomes a study uh, in preparation for strategy not just for naming, not just for passing on gossip, uh, not just titillating people, but if this is the structure of the conspiracy against us, then the next issue become what should be our strategy to remove this conspiracy and what tactics should we use to destroy this conspiracy given its design and its approach. But to merely point it out to merely expose and just leave it at that really uh, creates a problem. And ultimately, it can work against you. You can leave from one of those kind of lectures where, you know, you find out all the inside dope, feeling morally superior to those people who are conspiring against you and how dirty and low down and, you know, all that they are. But you would not be any the better off in defending yourself against them. You will not in any way have developed further steps for strengthening yourself to defend yourself against them. So, persons like uh, Coakley have an important role to play in our community by exposing certain things and situations, but we must all be cautious and recognize that that is only a part of the struggle, that this now must be integrated into other aspects of our development as people, that we must not just come into these kind of lectures to feel morally superior to another people and so forth, but we must actually use this information proactively. There will always be those within our ranks who will operate against our interests. Nothing new about this. It's been going on for hundreds of years. It will go on in the future. And we, will, we must discover them when we can. But we must also be in a position to neutralize them as well. Not just to name them and, 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 and let it go at that, leaving them in their same positions and place. That requires another level of organization. And it's that level of organization that I'm concerned about. Some of you are wondering about my power series that I've mentioned. 
And in that series, we talk about the think tanks and the other things as well. I am at the last lecture in terms of uh, writing for that series. And when I do finish that last lecture, then the series will start. It was designed for 10 lectures. I've written nine of the lectures, and I'm getting ready to write the 10th. Of course, I've fallen right in the middle of our uh, black history celebrations and African history celebrations. And this has retarded my capacity to sit down and complete the history, the uh, complete, the final lecture. And there's a great deal of information, too, and I have to really grade that information because I have to abstract a good deal of it. I cannot include everything in it. When I complete that lecture, then we will get started with the Power Series. I decided, in the light of my past history, that it would probably be better to write the lectures first before they're given rather than trying to transcribe them from lectures such as this from the tape. It's a, it takes a tremendous amount of work to try to transcribe a tape. Because when you do an oral presentation, you do so many things. And yet, when you look at it on a written page, you cannot just take a lecture, an oral lecture, and print it and put it out. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Because you pick up my tone, you pick up my facial features, you, you, you pick up a lot of things as you hear me talk that you will not pick up if the things are written on the, on the page. So consequently, even when you republish a lecture, you find yourself doing a tremendous amount of uh, editing, a tremendous amount of t uh, changing grammar, you know, so I'll stop in mid-sentence here, do other kind of things. I'll stop at a thought one minute and I'm going five minutes about something else and then come back. Uh, in a written situation, that creates tremendous problems. So instead of uh, lecturing and then trying to pull it off from the lecture, I decided what I'd do would write, I'd write the lectures first, and then we would present the lectures. And actually, the written material will be even broader than the lecture itself. And it's very important that the written material gets out. We are, are a very oral people. A good deal of our information is gained through hearing. But we have to face the fact now that we are in a so-called literate culture and we are in an electronic age. And while we may honor our griots and we may honor the oral mode, we must also face the reality that we that, that mode is not all we need to make it in this world. We cannot continue just to subsist on lectures alone. We must do a great deal more writing and a great deal more reading. And we must become much more involved in publishing information and in communicating information. There is no way I can communicate to you many of the things I would like to through speaking to you. It's not possible. I can't quote the references and go into kind of detail and the other stuff that you really need if you are really about work, you see. The most we can do here is give a bit of the information 
and motivate to a great degree. But in terms of a working knowledge, in terms of something that you can go back to again and again, in terms of the capacity to follow up references and so forth, you can't do that. And you know, and you know I've tried so much. And that's one of the reasons why I've gone on for three hours or four hours sometimes. <laughs> because you're trying to, you know, put it all in. You see, but no, you're gonna have to really you're gonna have to read. And you're gonna have to read a lot. We're gonna have to change our mode a bit. While we honor our oral traditions, we also have a literal tradition as African people as well. We are the first people of the word, the written word. So there's no reason why then we should perceive ourselves as only people who are caught up in the spoken word. We must recapture that word. And I'll tell you another thing this evening as, as well. We must publish more as people. It's very, very important that we do that. We don't have enough information out here. That's very important. And we need solid information out here. We as a people must read also beyond our African-centered books. Some people, get, some people are getting caught up in reading black-only books, or books written only by black authors. I warn you, that can limit your perception. We're writing as much as we can. Other people are writing as much as, we can, as they can. But frankly speaking, there are, the number of African-centered books written by African authors is still very narrow in terms of the kind of knowledge and information we need to have as a people. And consequently, then, we must integrate a lot of other knowledge from a lot of other sources into an African-centered program. I am concerned with Africanizing information. You can get information from anywhere and any place and anybody. It's not the source of the information that is of major importance. It is the question that you have in mind and the intentionality that you have in mind when you uh, contact that information that is of importance. When you come with certain African-centered questions and certain African-centered intentions, you can subvert the intentions of other people. And even though they may have written lies, they may have written a book to falsify your image. With an African-centered question in your mind and an African-centered intentionality in your mind, you can still gain useful information from that. And you can turn then their intentions into something that works for you. So you just can't say, well, because it's written by a white man, I'm not going to read it. Mm -mm. Or because, well, it's lying and they're intended to do it. No, the fact that you know it's a lie is, is information. <laughs> now, why is it a lie? What is the end point of the lie? What is trying to be accomplished there? What is the technique of the lie? How is this hooked into propaganda? In what way is, is this group trying to transform my consciousness? What techniques and methods can I get from this to use against my enemies? 
What are their methods and techniques of propaganda that I can use to advance the propaganda for African people? Because, see, our, our propaganda is not necessarily lies either, you know. Right. And propaganda is not necessarily a negative term. Yes, right. Propaganda comes from the basic word to propagate, to move information, to communicate information, to persuade and the methods of moving information and communicating information and of persuading people is not a science of Europeans only. Not by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, when you study the oral tradition, you'll find that that tradition is very much grounded in persuasion. And it's very much about persuasion. So then, hang in, I'm going to, you will hear about the announcement of the power conferences and uh, some of you, I think, have had some questions about the credit union. That's, that's still uh, going. We're still, collecting, um, we're still collecting pledges and so forth. Typically, as uh, some of the speakers have indicated, it's evening. The major problem you have is often people who will not commit themselves to, to work and will not stick to projects. And so you have a situation here of uh, trying to run a publishing company, not for profit. I must tell you, I don't get one nickel from any book that's sold. All of that goes into the African world information systems and is used as a base for education, consultation, building a strong publishing company so that we can disseminate information. None of that money is, goes into my personal income at all. But it also pays our rent over there. If some of you have been over there, you know I have a space as large as this space here. We, uh, we, we want to utilize the space to, in many, many ways for the community and so forth. But we have to pay for that space. We pay almost uh, $2,000 a month for that space. And so, I, therefore, I have to write for this company as a way of generating income to, to maintain that space and to further our own uh, agendas and as well as have to administer it every day too. You know, we have to do promotions, we have to do editing, advertising, shipping, all of that goes on right there as well. So if I'm a bit slow in terms of getting out the credit union, I hope you can understand when you're trying to do all of these things at once, it slows things down. What I need more than anything else is somebody who's going to come over there and say, I will head the credit union. I have no problem with delegating responsibility. Not one bit. You want to be the director of the credit union? You got it. That's it. Maybe once a month or whatever, we'll talk and we'll move it forward. We wanted, we wanted to do a loan fund over there. It's there. We got the ideas. We got the information. We got the structure. But we need committed people to carry things out. That is a problem. And you know who gives you the greatest problems? Gung-ho African Senate people. I'm telling you. I do better with the middle of the rotors. <laughs> That's a whole nother lecture. 
<laughs> and males as well. Yes. I can see why preachers got a lot of women in the church. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Hot, fired up nationalists are amazing people. We've got to get real, ladies and gentlemen. We must take care of business. I'm going to run quickly through this today. It's going to be a little theoretical. Hang in with me. I'm going to talk about culture and identity, even though I will not apologize for the theoretical tone to a degree, because again, nothing works like a good theory. A good theory is really the most concrete thing you can do. We've been deceived as African people into believing that to, to develop theory or to develop an abstraction is a waste of time. And yet we are ruled over by people who do just that. <laughs> develop theories and develop abstractions and develop conceptual things. We just want to jump right into it and go right at it without thinking. Theory is very, very important. It provides a way of, of course, of conceptualizing where you want to go and why you want to get there and what your endpoint is, a way of measuring your progress, a way, again, of bringing yourself back on task when you might have deviated for whatever reason or not, you see. I see people today, and I've been around the country in a number of places, who say, for instance, have uh, manhood training programs. They see uh, the violence in our cities and so forth, and they get these grants or they got something else and suddenly they want to transform young black men. And that's, that's very, that's a worthy idea. And this must happen if we are to transform our community. But again, you have to ask, transform them into what, for what reason, to what end? You see, it's not enough just to give these young men African values, if that's what you're about, or to just provide them with another orientation in the world if this is done in a vacuum, if this is not connected ultimately to the whole movement of African liberation and revolution. Values are not things you just hold and act on. Values at some level must be, they must be reinforced. They must be rewarded. If you train our young people into African values uh, and into certain manhood values and leave them there where they're still jobless and they're still unemployed and they're still oppressed, you're going to find yourself with a situation where sooner or later they will reject those values, you see. And consequently then you need to see how that training is integrated with economic development, political development, with the intentionality of overthrowing white domination and white supremacy, and also with the intentionality of blocking Asian domination and the domination of any other group. You must understand very clearly what a warrior is and what training men really is about. 
And you must understand that we are at war. Yes. It's so you're not just training them not to sell drugs and not to do this and not to do this. They must now be trained to undertake a major, major combat with two major enemies now. Not just the, the, the Europeans, but with the Asians as well. And possibly the Latin Americans. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we do not have any friends out here. And we are being rapidly surrounded by enemies in this country itself. And we are being isolated as a group within this country as well as in the world. And the training of young men and women and all of us have to take that into consideration, you see. And we have to understand then theoretically what is going on and then we have to put some real practical meat and bones on the theoretical framework. And I'm going to talk a bit about culture here because I found it instructive sometimes to look at things in very basic ways. You see, we talk about racism, and often we don't bother to define it. We talk about imperialism. We don't look at it in enough detail sometimes to really uh, deal with it concretely. We talk about culture as well, African culture, and yet we really don't, we haven't, as far as I've seen, analyzed that concept very deeply. I'm not going to analyze it today, but we have not analyzed it as well as we should. What do we mean by that? Whose culture are we referring to? You know, when we say that word, are we trying to reintroduce Egyptian culture in America today? <laughs> this is not Egypt. This is not 5,000 BC, 3,000 BC, or any other BC. This is not Sub-Saharan Africa either. Now, what am I saying about that? Africa and our history and our African cultures are tremendously rich and have great deals to offer us. And we all feed from those cultures. But to a great extent, I think we are facing the reality that we have to synthesize all the goods in those cultures and create a new one. Even the cultures that you call traditional, if you really know the history of those cultures, are cultures that have evolved over time. They are not fixed at year one and have stayed at year one. And therefore now you figure if you recapture it, you've recaptured the essence of African culture, and this is what you're going to recapture, and this is where you're going to stay in the midst of this whole changing world. Even those cultures that we call ancient did what? Evolved and moved over time. So there's no reason for us today to believe that we have to stay stuck in time. We use and we take and we maintain the essence of those cultures, the central identity that those cultures provide us, the lessons that those cultures have taught us, and we conquer new ground, and we Africanize new territory. And it is the whole world that we can claim for Africa, 
the world that has gone in the past that we want to, but the world to come. We are a two-sided people in the sense that we have two sides to our brains. African thought is not circular only. Europeans have no claim over linear thinking. And to be an African person does not mean that you have to be anti-linear in your thought processes. God gave you two sides of a brain here. One side is intuitive, holistic, spiritual, and so forth in its approach to the world. And the other side is analytical, critical, abstract, logical, objective in its approach to the world. The brain has a, uh, a, a, a set of nerves that attaches both sides of the brain that we call the corpus callosum, plus a number of other connections, the anterior commissure, the posterior commissure, which means that these sides of the brain were meant to do what? Communicate one with the other and to complement each other. That the human being is not meant to stay totally in one side of the brain and say, this side is the African side, I will ignore the other side. We can't do that, ladies and gentlemen. Anyone who studied deeply science, how science actually operates, has recognized that science operates based on intuition. Don't confuse the reading of scientific papers with how people come to arrive at scientific ideas. You see, often when you write the paper, you can't say, well, you know, I was laying up in my bed one night, and suddenly this dream came to me, and it all came together, and well, you don't hear that part in it, but that happens, doesn't it? It happens all the time. Or I was just talking to this guy, one word, oh, wow, cued it off, or something like that. In fact, what you want to do if you want to be creative is to work very, very hard at the problem. Go at it by every means possible. Saturate yourself with it. Try to work it through and leave it alone. And often then the unconscious mind will sweep it right into your consciousness. That's a holistic thing. Then you sit down and write it according to what? The scientific method. <laughs> you see? And you work out what? It's logic and the basis for it. And you rationalize it on what? logical principles, rational principles, then you may set up what crucial experiments and so forth and so on, you see, and work this through. But sometimes we confuse this because we read scientific papers, we read the order, and we read the rational approach, and we think that is the only way people arrive at scientific things. No, science truly works with an interaction between the intuitive and the logical between the, the feeling and spiritual and the concrete. And I'm saying that because it's very, very important. I, I, I get sometimes some thoughts out here that wants to make us one-sided and make us reject all of the possibilities that we have been given to use the whole of our brain. And I tell you, our advantage as African people will be if we can be the first people to use all of our minds. Yes. Yes. Let the other ones stay on the left. And let some stay on the right. 
Let's be able to move from what? Left to right in an, when it is what? Appropriate. This, this is the captain of the ship. I've told you about Star Wars. You know, uh, and you have a what? Left-sided, right-sided situation there with Mr. Spock exemplifying what? The left side. And Bones representing what? The right. He's full of feeling and love and brotherhood and, you know, spirit. No, that's fine. It has its place, but it limits him too. His emotions overrun his better judgment often. His feeling gets out of place. But of course, then we see Spock over there, whose lack of feeling also causes him problems as well. You see? And so they are both limited by the fact that they're too much into one side of their heads. Kirk is the what? Is the balancer. He utilizes what? Both sides and their talents. And that's why he's what? The captain of the ship and is in control of the situation, you see. And ladies and gentlemen, you see then, an African-centered way of thinking involves the use of both sides of your mind and using them appropriately. And to the degree that we can use both sides of our minds appropriately, to that degree we'll become captains of this ship that we live on called Earth and of this universe. Yes, and we must keep that in mind. Simply because we found some of our cultures, and those cultures may have been very spiritual and so forth, does not mean that that's the only side of our lives that we have to develop. We have to also look at the characteristics a people exhibited and exhibit in terms of their whole ecological situation, you see and see then the characteristics of their thought styles and approaches to the world within the context in which they they were acting you see you just can't go in there and say well this is the way they were behaving this is the african way this is the way i'm going to behave no no those ways reflect the ecolo ecological situation as that situation would have changed so would their ways of thinking changed you see and it's very very important that we keep that uh, in mind we must ask the degree to which certain styles of thoughts and approaches even if they are African and have been exhibited by African people are appropriate to the solving of our problems today we must not be afraid to appropriate any form of thought that will advance our interests as people, regardless of where they come from. Because as soon as we do that, as soon as we appropriate any form of thought or any instrument to serve African interests, to serve African survival, to serve us as an African people, that instrument becomes transformed and becomes Africanized. And it becomes what? Ours. You see, and we have to recognize that and keep that in mind. We need more linear thinking at this point. Oh, yes. Does that mean that we forget the intuition? Not at all. Does that mean we forget the oral tradition? Not at all. But it means then that while maintaining those traditions, 
we also must enhance other aspects of our personality. We want to look a bit at culture. What is culture? And we should ask this again. I admire Chancellor Williams very much. And I think the destruction of African, of um, black civilization, of course, is a magnificent book. And I've said many times, though, I think many people read it incorrectly. They read it as history, which it really is not, per se. It is, as he stated very clearly, a set of case studies. An analysis of African culture with and of African history with the question in mind in what way did these cultures or this history advance our interests in, in, as a people and in what way did this history fail us as a people as well and we have to look at it that way what were the problems represented by African cultures such that we permitted ourselves to be overrun by Europeans and we find ourselves in the situation that we find ourselves tonight Understand? It's no insult for us to ask that question of ourselves. And it's no insult for us to look critically at African history and culture and to be critical of it. It is only through our being critical of our history and our culture that we can advance our interests as a people and survive as a people. Looking at the question what is culture? Horton and, and, and Hunt said from life, from their life experiences, a group develops a set of rules and procedures for meeting their needs. The set of rules and procedures together with a supporting set of ideas and values is called a culture. To a great extent, you see a culture involves a, a, a set of rules and a procedure for meeting needs. And this is the thing we have to keep in mind. You don't have a culture just to have a culture. And you don't claim a culture just because it's a culture or just because it's African. The ultimate thing that culture must do is solve problems. That's why people evolve a culture. That's why culture comes into existence as a way of what? Solving problems and meeting needs. That's why at a certain point when a culture no longer meets the needs of a people or solves the problem confronting a people, that culture must be transformed. There's nothing sacred about holding a culture in the face of, you know, new, new events and new changes. Unless, of course, you are free to do that if you're willing also to accept suicide or death. <laughs> and you have that right to that choice. You know, I tell people, you know, we have the right to say, look, we're going to hold on to this culture even if it kills us. But we should be what? Very conscious of our decision. We should not be holding on to it out of a misunderstanding of what culture is supposed to do. Ultimately, culture is supposed to solve problems and to meet the needs of the people. And a culture then has to be measured against those standards. Does this culture meet our needs? Does it solve our problems? Chancellor Williams, in a sense, then looked at the African cultures, looked at African characteristics, and looked at them in terms of in what way did they meet 
our needs and in what way did they deal with the slave trade and colonialism and the other kind of things that happened to us as African people. And after going through that, then he set up what? The plan, which a lot of people don't read. <laughs> which is the whole point of what? This the whole point of the book. Not the first part, but really the second part. Looking at our culture and our history critically, he then, and looking at our situation and where we are today as a result of that, that, that history and of those cultures, he then draws out a map for a plan, a way for us to what? Get out of our situation and to restore African civilization and to restore African people. But it's at that point most people sort of move on to something else. Mm -mm. This is, the this is the place you must study. We're going to include that in our power of studies, by the way. That plan along with some others. The sets and rules and procedures together with a supporting set of ideas. Cultures are not just ways people sing and dance and what they eat and how they dress and the rituals and so forth that they perform. It, these ways of behaving and dressing and so forth are based on sets of ideas and values. And ultimately, in a deeper sense, it's this set of ideals and values that lay the basis for culture. Cluckarn and anthropologists indicated that culture uh, is all the, uh, and he defined culture as all the historically created designs for living, explicit and implicit, rational, irrational, and non-rational, which may exist at any given time as a potential guide, as potential guides for the behavior of man, for the behavior of the people. In other words, culture creates designs as a result of its history for living and provides guides for its members, guides for behaving. As a set of the guides for designing, uh, for guiding, uh, for guiding the behavior of its members, a culture provides standards of proper cognitive, emotional, and behavioral conduct. Culture provides a set of norms and concepts of what is to be expected to exist, why we expect them to exist. Though culture is a product of actual experience, culture is essentially ideological, meaning that it essentially exists in the mind because culture ultimately is based on the sharing of beliefs and customs and expectations. We receive our culture as a result of, as a part of our social heritage. To the degree that the individual identifies or is at one with this culture, and to the degree to which the members of a culture identify with it, culture is represented in the minds of its people. In other words, we have to recognize deeply that culture cannot exist outside of ourselves. It only can exist in our minds and in our bodies as a people. And therefore, to a great extent, it is ideological more than it is physical, more than it is job behavioral, more than it is just ways of dressing. Ultimately, a culture must be represented in the very minds of a people. And it is only through its representation as a mental entity that a people can identify with the culture. A culture is a way of thinking, a way of attending the world, of perceiving the world, of classifying 
and categorizing the world, of ordering the world, of processing information, and of evaluating the world. When we say then that the Europeans decultured us or distorted our culture, we are also saying then that the Europeans have distorted our modes of attending, of attending the world, our modes of experiencing the world, our modes of classifying and, and uh, categorizing the world, our modes of processing information that comes from the world. So there's no little wonder then that we are having problems in what some people call education, particularly as it is European, uh, Eurocentrically designed that our children are perceived as having problems in thinking skills and math skills and science skills and so forth. Because ultimately, you see, culture provides you with a frame for thinking. It provides you with a structure for organizing information, for classifying information, for evaluating information, you see, for processing information. And when you distort a people's culture, then you distort their capacity to appropriately organize information and deal with it. And this is what has happened to us. This is the reason why I say again and again that the problem of education in terms of the problems our children have in schools are not education problems. They are political. They only express themselves as educational problems. The problems our children may have in paying attention, thinking so-called logically, categorizing, classifying, in terms of vocabulary and so forth, are really not academic problems. They are cultural problems, and they are the result of political interactions. Because in, tra in transforming our sense of who we are and what we are, and in transforming our culture, so was our thinking and so forth transformed as well. This is why ultimately the educational problems of our people will have to be solved in terms of cultural transformation, not just in terms of educational technique, you see. And this is what the whites try to lay on it. You know, we're going to discover finally that great reading technique. Children can learn almost in any way you teach them. But it's about more than technique. It must be a part of a total cultural structure. And the children must come with a cultural intentionality. Because no technique is going to matter if they pay no mind, if they have no interest. You see, if that culture has given them little or no reason for learning what, uh, what is to be taught. If what they're learning is really not relevant to their situation and their circumstances. And so we have to understand very much how culture itself structures the thought processes. Now, there are some of you who are saying, but there are those of us who knew nothing about African culture and we got all A's in school and so forth and so on. Remember this, though. We got these A's in school and we went through these schools at the price of alienation. As, chance, as, um, as uh, the gentleman who's Carter G. Woodson wrote about the fact that he, it took him, what, 30 years to get over that Eurocentric education? What is he talking about? To a degree, 
Without that African-centeredness, without that African sense of culture, without an African-centered intentionality that determined why he was learning and for what reason he was learning and how he was going to use his learning in the interests of African people, he adopted an alien culture, as many educated blacks have had to do. In adopting the alien culture and adopting the alien outlook and adopting alien values and so forth, they adopted then a thought framework, you see, that allowed so-called what? Success within the European academic system, you see. But the unfortunate thing about it is, once you adopt that structure and that mode and orientation of thinking, you can only work within it. And so you can keep your ability to think abstractly and logically and scientifically only if you work for us as a what? As a scientist. But you cannot take that thought and what? Outside of that structure and use it in your own interest. And this is the dilemma that many of those who so-called succeeded in this system have had to face, you see. I categorize and I classify, but I categorize and I classify in terms of European structures, and I find that I'm only comfortable in what? Working within those structures, and I can only what? Advance those structures. The European system has this economic system set up in such a way that when you try to use this structured kind of thought outside of the system, it won't pay you. <laughs> yeah, it will punish you. And often your own group has problems with it because our group only pays preachers. But it would rarely pay anyone else that tries to operate in its interest. And so you get caught up in two worlds.
fool, I'm a fool or not. Young and from a corner, heard jewels being dropped. Radicalized by the knowledge I got. Now the gods on the bottom and the devil's on top. Seized out of concentrated poverty box. Devil done shot pesticides in the crops. Genetically modified genocide kings. Giving babies autism when they get the vaccines. Margaret Sanger, birth control lead. Changed his name and take two to see. Facts it, don't take faith to believe. In fact, we have facts to back these. Prescott Sheldon, Bush director. Bush eugenics, finance Hitler. Planned Parenthood, distort the clear picture. Mission to abort the last nigga. Listen, do the knowledge this wisdom given. From the mouth of things it was written. These are the last days written. Will never get paid. He who has an ear to hear, hear it. This shit deeper in lyrics. Don't believe that's real It's gonna get worse But the same spin still Super aisle 7,000 Knees never nil Almost all another story Unmatched skill Will the God be the glory I'm just real You ain't got nothing for me Peace be still Get you behind me Satan Blue Klux Klan In a police station Travel black man With mass incarceration Prison plantation This lamentation Papa Jeremiah Spin fire on the scroll Faith can't shake it Look Satan I'm Joe And I ain't on no devil's payroll A lot of my people Done sold they soul Gotta fight evil in angels clothes Unchanged Django Out to get toes Listen your Christian scripture Says so You a Muslim Look I wrote the book though Now it's lad in the Hollywood of thieves in the temple. Knowledge on a hot hip hop instrumental Block from the mainstream, too influential Niggas never been so simple everybody that concludes our part one of our digitally remastered presentation from brother dr amos wilson in our audio practice series called dr amos wilson on feel good history this episode has featured music from conscientization 101 music from our free gift collection dr amos wilson on colonial education and decolonize this Properly Defining Settlers, Part 1, from our musical commentaries collection. Jensu Dean and Wise Intelligence, Amen, from their album Game of Death. Links to featured music are in our show notes, and we also included links to Dr. Amos Wilson's books that are in the Conscientization 101 library. And don't forget, when you visit us at Conscientization101.com or C101Magazine.com, sign up to our mailing list for exclusive information and downloads and visit our store. You know, that's where you can download our free gift today. So if you haven't heard the tracks before, 
and you want to hear them before we air them, that is where you can get it. All the tracks from the Audio Prices series. And just check out our unabridged interviews. Pick up a few. Pick up a few musical commentaries and one of our wonderful shirts. You will be supporting 100% independent media so we can continue to learn from each other. Also, don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Conscien1. That's C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N and the number one on Facebook at Conscientization 101 and Instagram at C101 Editors. Okay, and let me be clear about one thing. I just listed our social media, but let me be clear. We do not use social media to post our in our original content, okay? We use social media for marketing purposes. And just to be consistent with our critique, we just wanted to say that, you know, that that is not the place for your original content, especially so-called Pan-African nationalists who I've seen on Facebook put their full interviews with, you know, with African-centered content on Facebook. So Facebook owns that, okay? So it's important that, you know, you don't rely so much, okay, on these other entities, I mean, these other platforms to get your information out there. And we're not just saying that. We are really, we've been in the process of talking about producing some shows to give people some information about how to do that, how to make sure you control as much as you can, own and control as much as you can. We have um, copywritten our website. All our material is copywritten. And we don't want to just say go and try and do it and figure it out. If we've done the work, we want to put together something to um, that's coherent, you know, that people can understand and follow to do the same thing. So we are in, in the process of discussing and mapping out um, a show and a series to try to get that kind of information out there. So there you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. Thanks for listening. We will be back in two weeks with part two of Dr. Amos Wilson on Feel Good History in our Audio Praxis series. Peace.